0: good evening everyone uh, my name is diana morris and i'm the director of the open society institute here in baltimore i want to welcome you very much uh... to this uh... special discussion we're going to have tonight uh... this is actually the eleventh event that we're having in our talking about race series and it's actually in its third year so thanks to you uh... we're going to keep on going and it's something that the open society institute has been doing in partnership with the Enoch Pratt uh, Free Library. Uh, Carla Hayden is actually traveling tonight, uh, so she's not with us, but she does join me in welcoming you all here uh, to hear the discussion. Uh, Before we begin, I want to thank some of the people who have made this program possible. Uh, I want to thank Jimmy Wood, who, among other things, is the husband of one of our board members, Robin Wood. That's his claim to fame, of course, and also Vernon Reed uh, for their very important uh, and ongoing support for this program. Now, throughout our Talking About Race series, uh, we have touched upon um, a number of questions that are really closely related uh, to the issues that we work on at the Open Society Institute. Uh, we focus on three big challenges that our city's fa- facing, but frankly, many cities are facing and we have found this just to be a very good place uh, to work so we're focusing on tackling drug addiction treatment curtailing the overuse of incarceration and also reconnecting kids to school and making sure that they're on the way um, and on the road to success throughout all this work the issue of race is one that we touch upon every day Um, especially because we're really focused on ensuring that there's access and opportunity for everybody. Uh, So for people who are in our community living in poverty and who have really experienced either now or historically discrimination, um, race is very much um, at the nexus of all that. In fact, some of you may have heard a story that was aired um, this morning on NPR and the local uh, WYPR affiliate and it was talking about a very related subject. It said that the typical family uh, that's white has 20 times the wealth of, the, um, of, a, of a median black family in the United States. And, and this is actually the largest wealth gap that this country has experienced in 25 years. I'm just going to quote for a second from that story. It said, the recession widened the racial wealth gap. But experts say it's also due to deeply ingrained differences in things such as inheritance, home ownership, taxes, and even expectations. Study after study shows that white families are more likely than blacks and Hispanics to enjoy certain economic advantages, even when their incomes are similar. Often this is subtle things, help from mom and dad with a down payment on a home or college tuition or a tax break on money passed from one generation to the next. That's the end of the quote. But I think we know that these subtle things are really the legacy of years of discrimination, which has blocked both African Americans and Hispanics from enjoying a myriad of public benefits, uh, from the GI Bill to public scholarships to school to uh, mortgage um, tax deductions. Now, you might ask why this is relevant to the discussion uh, we're going to have this evening about health disparities but once you think about it a little bit, you'll see that health disparities are very closely linked to the wealth gap. Uh, without a good education, it's hard to get a job with health insurance. Uh, without adequate insurance and without money in reserve, families are forced to, to really choose between health care and some very basic essentials. And then with adequate, when you don't have adequate food f- funds for housing, you end up getting housing in areas that are often today referred to as food deserts and you're often in a house or even a neighborhood that is uh, itself unhealthy and that can trigger different conditions such as asthma so the list goes on the wealth gap has an unfortunate and a very tangible effect on the health of many african-american and hispanic members of our community the quality of their lives are compromised the life expectancy is shortened, and they can't be as productive as they really would like to be in their own families, in their communities, and in the workplace. So tonight we're going to have an opportunity to learn more about the impact of these health disparities and also what we can do in this era of health care reform that has so much potential to close the gap. So I'm delighted to hear uh, from the speakers that we're going to have tonight, and also, of course, for you all uh, to to participate. I do want to let you know, if you haven't been to one of these before, that after we have our moderated discussion, we will take questions from the audience. So you should have received, when you came through the door, um, a question card and we will pick them up in the middle of the program um, so that we will be able to then use some of your questions for that question and answer session. So now to get to the highlight of the evening, let me introduce tonight's speakers. Um, Our moderator tonight is actually going to be Dr. Ozidi Barbo, our own uh, health commissioner, who came and joined us here in Baltimore in July 2010. She is a primary health care physician herself. Uh, She came to us uh, from the Office of School Health in New York City's Department of Health, and uh, she has served uh, there in New York City uh, as a medical director since 2003. One of the very important things that she implemented when she was there was an electronic health record, uh, and this really helped the city's 1.1 million public school students. She's also served There's an Open Society Connection because she also served as one of our National Open Society uh, Foundation Physician Fellows. And in that capacity, she taught Latino uh, teens how to advocate for their own needs as a way to discre- decrease uh, health disparities. In 2010, Dr. Barbo received the Hispanic Health Leadership Award from the National Hispanic Medical Association. And now one of our speakers tonight is going to be Dr. Michelle Gordine, and she is a primary care physician, a health policy specialist, and an expert in preventive health and wellness. And her work has been uh, really focused on addressing the cultural and social forces that contribute to health inequities. She served as uh, deputy secretary to the Department of Health and Medical Hygiene, And she's now a clinical assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and a senior associate faculty at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She has written her new book, which is, I think, Outside, Reclaiming Our Health, A Guide to African-American Wellness. And she's done this book because African-Americans are so affected by obesity, high blood pressure, cancer, and other serious conditions at far greater rates than other Americans. Our second speaker is going to be Dr. Thomas Laviste, uh, who is the William and Nancy Richardson Professor in Health Policy and also the Director of the Hopkins Center for Health Disparity Solutions at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He frequently lectures, including tonight, on minority health issues um, at leading universities and all sorts of professional conferences and workshops. He was appointed a fellow at the Brookdale Foundation, Um, he was awarded the Knowledge Award from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, from the Office of Minority Health in particular, and also he has received the Innovation Award by the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. So with uh, those wonderful qualifications, I think we're all in for a treat and a very informative evening that I hope you'll participate in. Welcome and help us. Uh, welcome our speakers tonight thank you
1: can you all hear me okay excellent Um, so uh, thank you once again to diana and OSI and um, just a few opening remarks on this session um, as Diana mentioned, a year ago, almost to the day, I started as Commissioner of Health. And one of my guiding principles in moving forward the work of the health department in addressing disparities was promoting health equity. And so it, it really is uh, an honor and a privilege to be moderating this session with our two speakers who are so knowledgeable um, in this area. So thank you again to OSI and to the Pratt Library for hosting us. Um, To give us some background in Baltimore City, over the last, from the years 2000 to 2008, the all-cause mortality decreased by 22%. And that's really good news for the city. But if you look at the disparity between mortality, all-cause mortality between African Americans and whites, it actually increased by 6%. And so I think that really creates a stark relief as to the importance of engaging in these conversations. And my hope today is that we'll have a very invigorating discussion about what some of the drivers of these ongoing disparities are um, and, as I was telling my uh, speakers here if if the Mark Steiner show is any indication, I think that we'll be we 're in for a, a wonderful treat um, so in terms of looking at disparities within baltimore city i 'm not going to bore you with with more statistics, but I encourage you. So check out our website, baltimorehealth.org, and look at the 2010 disparities report. Um, And while you're there, I also encourage you to look at our Healthy Baltimore 2015 report, which is the city's action agenda for the, the 10 priority health areas that are most affecting the city and that account for the greatest preventable disease, disability, and death. And within those 10 priority areas, we've highlighted the drivers and the where the greatest disparities lie. So again, it's, it's more information for communities to use for action. And so I think that with a backdrop, maybe the, the most appropriate way for us to begin is for the two of you to talk us through the differences between health disparities, and health inequities?
2: That's actually a very good question because those terms tend to be used um, interchangeably, although they're not quite interchangeable. The other terms that tend to be used interchangeably are um, health disparities and health care disparities. And so it's important to distinguish between them. In terms of health Disparities, the way that I like to describe it in simplest terms is that this is talking about differences in health outcomes between groups of people. For example, differences in mortality rates between African Americans and whites, as Dr. Barbo was just mentioning. Health care disparities look specifically at the delivery of health services within the health system and basically represent differences in the delivery of quality care. Quality has been defined by the Institute of Medicine as care that is safe, that is timely, efficient, effective, equitable, and patient-centered. Difference in those factors that determine the quality of care between groups of
3: individuals? Well, okay. So, um, so health, the difference between the health disparities and health inequities is the question. So t- at some level, it's, it's really more of a, a distinction without a difference in that they're describing the same thing, that there are people in this country that are living sicker and dying younger than they should and at, at its core, that's what it comes down to. But but the distinction is made in that health disparities is there's a suggestion of there being a disparate population, a population that has had a deficit, that is um, that is unequal, and that they that they are unequal because there is some deficit that's producing the inequality, that difference in their health outcomes, as opposed to health inequalities, which is I guess the counter. Um, uh, to the term health in health equity, meaning health equality, meaning to each person based on their need. And that based on that need, we can determine what health care they ought to be receiving and where, what health outcomes they expect to have. So that every difference is not necessarily an indication of some underlying inequity or inequality. There are differences that are explainable either because of their scientific uh, causes for that difference. For example we know that there are differences in rates of breast cancers between men and women. Is that necessarily an, an indication of some underlying inequality? It's probably more of, a, of a, a biological fact that's not the result of underlying inequality. But the differences that are, that are not explainable through some um, justifiable reason are indicating um, some sort of underlying inequality that uh, is unjust unacceptable and in need of redress. So
1: with that being said, and um, the general thinking now being that where we live, work, learn, and play has as much to do with keeping us healthy as making us sick, can you talk us through um, how communities and how culture contribute either to protecting against disparities or exacerbating disparities.
3: Sorry.
1: Why don't we start with Tom? Yeah,
3: okay. So I think it. I think it's. It's uh, the issue is mainly uh, the issue of health disparities, and you know you'll, you'll, you'll forgive me because I tend to use the term interchangeably as well. But what I'm talking about is inequalities that are unjust and unfair. uh, Whether I'm using the term health disparities or health inequities, I think that at the core, at the core, this is really about uh, more about place than anything else. That although we live in this country together, we experience the country very differently. The United States is a dramatically racially segregated country. And because of that segregation, and Baltimore is among the most segregated cities in this country, and because of that segregation, people are living in very different risk environments. We're exposed to very different risks. And the health differences that we see, I think, are fundamentally about the fact that we're experiencing this country in very different ways and therefore exposed to different risks. Not only are we exposed to different risks, but we have access to very different protective factors, and by that, I'm talking about things like access to fresh fruit and vegetables, access to good quality health care, access to green space to, uh, and places to, have, places to have safe recreation. Because of segregation, segregation determines who lives in which type of environment and therefore who is express, exposed to which set of risk factors. And it's probably at, at its core what's driving many of the disparities that we see.
2: Just to add on to that... Um, I think it's clear from what we know that education is a predictor of of health, that income is a predictor of health, and that what we've seen over generations is systematic inequalities that go all the way from slavery, through Jim Crow, through segregation, and to present day that have prevented and I'm talking more about African Americans versus whites in this particular instance, that have prevented the accumulation of generational wealth and level of educational attainment across the board that's necessary for good health. Education in this country determines in large part what kind of job you're going to get, how much you're going to be paid, and whether or not that employer is likely to provide health insurance. And remember that... Today, the majority of individuals who are insured in this country receive insurance from their employer. Income is another factor, and it gets back to the point that Tom was making, that if you look at individuals who live in low-income communities and compare them with individuals who live in communities of higher income, that those individuals who live in the lower-income communities are likely to have poor health status. And another thing that needs to be noted is the fact that African Americans, even if they themselves are not of low income, they may be middle class, are more likely than white Americans of middle class to live in low income communities. And so, the same lack of access to the resources—I like to call them the resources that are needed to be healthy—the um, the access to Um, healthy foods, the opportunities for safe and affordable physical activity, etc., are lacking in lower income communities. And so education and income are extremely important in determining where you're going to live. Quite frankly, let's be honest, when we go back generations, race determined whether or not you were allowed to learn how to read, what school you went to, what type of doctor you went to, what type of hospital you were allowed to go to, to, which door of that hospital you were allowed to enter. I'm old enough to remember going through the back door. Those types of things, those types of things over time, although they've been addressed, the cumulative effect of those things over time uh, has impacted health status today and in part can explain the inequities that we see in health status among and between uh, populations.
1: So following that thread in terms of the cumulative effects of um, the, the social determinants of health that you just alluded to, educational segregation, housing segregation, et cetera, there are some that talk about the impact of stress on disparities, and I'm wondering what thoughts you, got, you all have on that particular topic
3: well, so for, well, first, in answering that question, I'd, I'd add to what Michelle just said, that there, that there are actually four disparities. Mm-hmm. There's a fourth. We have the wealth disparity, which contributes to health disparities. We have the educational attainment disparity, which contributes to health disparities. We also have the criminal justice or incarceration <laughs> disparities. And all four of these disparities, along with health disparities, contribute to each other. They produce each other. That one causes the other. I don't think we're going to find a solution to any of this until we start to recognize that we're dealing with a complex set of relationships happening within the larger society that goes far beyond medical care and public health and the things that we normally do within the healthcare system, and that these disparities are societal. So we know, everyone here knows that people come out of prison sicker than they were when they went into prison. We also know. That many people wind up in prison because of undiagnosed and untreated mental health conditions, which ultimately lead people to engage in behaviors that increase the risk of incarceration. The relationship between education and wealth is well understood. and in terms of the, and we know that people in, uh, in prison are much more likely to be illiterate. And in terms of the relationship between educa- uh, incarceration and wealth. The best way I can think of to ensure that a group of people does not acquire wealth is to have them in prison between the ages of 17 and 34, which is when most people acquire the human capital necessary to create wealth. So unless we recognize that there's a complex set of societal factors that interact to produce the health outcomes that we're focusing on, I don't see how we're going to find solutions. Having said that, I forgot what your question was. (laughs) Stress. So, and then there's stress. So, and then there's stress. I think stress is, is, is key because a lot of, uh, stress is key and it's key in, in, in two ways. First of all, we all need some stress in order for us to function at our peak performance. So stress is not in and of itself a bad thing, but like most things, anything to excess becomes a bad thing. So if you're living in an environment when your body is constantly um, in, a, in a state of hypervigilance because of fear of crime, victimization, or uh, fear of being judged um, because of your race or ethnicity, how you look, the way you act, where you went to school, the way you talk, any of these purposes, your, your body is constantly in this state of hypervigilance, and this leads to um, uh, uh, insulin resistance. We know that. It leads to... Blood, uh, blood, you know, blood pressure, which which actually varies a lot over across the day. If you're constantly in the stress, your blood pressure does not go down. It kind of stays at a peak during throughout the day and does not react. Uh, it does not recover during rest the way it's supposed to. And when that happens, blood pressure begins to. You know, it's more likely to become hypertensive. So there are varieties of ways in which these social factors, often through stress mechanisms, produce physiological outcomes that produce the diseases that we see, hypertension, diabetes, high rates of cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, and so on.
2: So just to add to what Thomas said, stress is is an extremely important factor, and I actually have a whole chapter about that in in Reclaiming Our Health. Um, No one group has a lock on stress. We're all stressed out. You know, these electronic devices that were supposed to make our lives easy have created, it's like a monster. They've created even more stress because you know, your your employer Don't expects you to be Blackberry available now. 24-7. Tom's taking his Blackberry now, setting a very poor example for those I'm of actually, us here in the room. I'm actually putting on silence, so
3: that <laughs> was the uh, example I was trying to.
2: But but having said that, um, my chapter goes a little bit further in talking about stress because I'm the, the whole premise of the book is looking at cultural and social factors that um, contribute to African-American health disparities. And so... I wanted to look at the specific stress that racism or even perceived racism causes. And perceived is an important word because quite frankly, when you look at the literature on this issue, it's the perception in the mind of the individual who's experiencing the racism that that actually matters. And the studies that I looked at examined how they, 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 were, they were done under the premise that, that African Americans experience stress differently and they exhibit outward symptoms differently. And what these studies found was that it depended on how African Americans dealt with the stressor. So here's the example that I give in the book, and this is actually a true story. When I was deputy secretary at the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, an African American female employee called and asked if she could come to meet with me this in and of itself was very unusual because the department you know even though there aren't like prohibitions um in in going and seeking um time with an individual that's several layers above your boss um, it it usually doesn't happen and this woman actually worked for someone who was maybe three layers below my office and so when she called i knew that that it was an issue because Folk don't typically do that every day. So she came up to me and she started talking to me about her supervisor. And she said, you know, my supervisor is very upset with me. um, And I think that it's very unfair. And she went on to describe what was going on. And basically it was sort of a difference in viewpoint between her view and the supervisor's view she had a different opinion than she simply wanted to express to the supervisor. Supervisor didn't want to hear it and basically told her that if she persisted in attempting to be heard, that he would write her up for insubordination. This triggered a response in her that actually caused her to miss several days of work thereafter. She was so upset because she perceived that the supervisor was treating her like an angry black woman. She felt that there was some hint of racism in the way that the supervisor treated her. Well, I was never able to ascertain whether or not racism was involved at all. Clearly, there was a relationship issue between the supervisor and the employee that needed to be resolved. And in my mind, after fully fully investigating, clearly the supervisor probably could have handled it differently and perhaps a bit better. But in terms of her response, the reason she was out for several days is because her blood pressure shot up. In terms of her response to this whole incident, it didn't matter whether or not I could uncover that there was racism behind the incident. That's what she perceived. That created the stress response that Tom was talking about, that we all have in response to stress that causes her blood pressure to elevate. And just to go a little bit further in talking about that stress response, it is true that stress stress is normal. Some stress is good. The stress response causes increased, um, your, your heart rate to increase so that it's able to pump more blood to your muscles and get more oxygen to your muscles. So that, for example, if you're in the woods and faced facing a bear, you know, you either fight or you flee. In that case, it's probably a wise idea to flee and not fight. And so what happens is your heart rate goes up, which causes your blood pressure to go up. Your blood sugar is elevated temporarily because that provides additional fuel for you to be able to get the heck out of there or fight. All of those responses are normal. And when the stressor or the stressful situation goes away then everything is supposed to return to normal. What happens in chronic stress is that you experience persistent symptoms, which cause your blood pressure to continue to be elevated, which cause your blood sugar to be elevated, which cause uh, cortisol, which is a stress hormone, to remain elevated, which unfortunately causes us to gain weight right here. I won't even get into that. Um, But the way that stress is handled um, really does predict the outward physical manifestations in terms of disease symptoms.
1: And so it's extremely important. So um, I want to follow this thread of how others perceive individuals and transition to the healthcare setting. Um, and what comes to mind is there's been several studies done looking at emergency department treatment of individuals coming in in pain. And most acutely, you know, for uh, comes to mind is a study that was done on um, Latinos going into emergency departments and having their pain medication be much lower than others and sort of being – Labeled as, you know, you were talking about the angry black woman, but labeled as the III syndrome and, and people discounting their pain. And so I want us to now sort of shift and talk about healthcare settings and, and how the healthcare system contributes to disparities and the role that institutional racism plays in these settings.
2: It's, it's very clear. I'm sorry, Tom, you want to? I'll, I'll be brief. It's
1: really clear that um,
2: uh, physicians' perceptions of the patients that they treat can, can color um, the types of uh, treatment options that they provide um, for better or for worse. We all have um, no one in here is perfect. We all have our underlying biases, um, and it depends on the the, the type of uh, internal fortitude that we have as to whether or not we allow those biases to color how we interact with people, what we expect from people, and how we um, treat people. And I think there's plenty of literature um, that that reveals that, and let me make sure I'm very clear about this, reveals that um, white physicians show a preference towards white patients, that does not always translate into differences in provision of care. These studies were measuring preference, and there were various ways that they um, qualified that that terminology of preference. But we also do know that um, this is not necessarily limited to white physicians. There are some studies that have shown that African-American physicians sometimes have a somewhat negative bias towards African-American patients, which colors the physician's expectation of compliance, which is a loaded word, um, because compliance depends quite heavily on your ability to comply, which as we as physicians don't always ascertain. Um, but let me stop and allow Tom to jump in on this topic as well.
3: Okay, let me go in a little different direction. So, uh, culture is a complex thing, and everyone belongs to cult- to too many cultures, right? So, if you're a physician, you belong to the culture of, the, of of physicians. You belong to the culture of the hospital that you're working out of, and typically, I mean, and, and uh, so so we all belong to these different cultures. So that whether or not you are yourself African American, Latino, or you know, any other ethnic or minority group. Um, may not be the issue, so the, the issue is where the, what, what, what culture you were trained into, and there are aspects of medical culture that produces racially differential outcomes, in other words, racial disparities so the way that people that we are, tra- are trained to practice in, in medicine is we, we train to practice on um, uh, we're trained basically based on, based on the experience of people who are training us, right? And that experience is colored by the individual who is doing the training and what their experiences are, which is also influenced by their belief systems and the attributions that they make in their experience dealing with different patients. And when, we're deal- when you're dealing with an individual patient, it's a one-on-one relationship. One person, one, one patient, one provider, who's trying to deal with this individual patient and figure out what their needs are. But the problem is that the norms that we, knew, that we, that we uh, use to, to apply to these individual patients are not necessarily adequately or accurately applied to any given individual. So let me give you an example. So we've decided um, that a, a, blood, a systolic blood pressure of 140 is the standard for what is considered hypertension. Right, so if you're above that, you're, you're too high. If you're below that, it's too, you're too low. Well, when you look at an entire population of people, and we collect blood pressure on all, all, all people, you get a normal bell curve. There are some, the, the average person is about 140, and they're fine. There are some people that are below 140, and, they're, and that's normal for them. There are some people that are above 140, and that's normal for them. So there are some individuals for whom 145 is okay, because that's their normal, and for others, 135 would be okay, because that's their normal. But that's not the way that the guidelines are written, that's not the way that the textbooks are written, and that's not the way that the training is done. The training says 140 is the standard, and if you're above 140, then there are protocols that are supposed to kick in and we're supposed to make decisions. This is the way that we approach things. So we look at people and we make, we, and we and use basically on the basis of our experience and on the basis of averages, we try to apply those averages to individuals. And when I say we, I mean all people. This is the way the human brain works. We look at our prior experiences, we look at people that we encounter in our daily life that have common characteristics that are consistent with our prior experience, and we draw conclusions right so you're walking down the hall and you see a person coming towards you and you're making all these judgments is this male or female is this person in my group, my ethnic group, my racial group is this person looking at me and smiling should I put my head down and pretend I don't see the person, should I look look at the person and make eye contact we're making all sorts of judgments about how to interact with people that's the way the human brain works, I'll tell you a quick story of of a a case where I've had an example of this I was in the airport in um, Birmingham, Alabama. It was late in the evening and the airport was empty. And I'm walking down this corridor and there's only one other person around and there's a guy, he's coming towards me, and we're going across each other in this hallway. And I'm my brain is, uh, you know, okay, I'm thinking about a bunch of things. Is the car going to be there to pick me up and take me where I got to go? I don't know where I'm going. I don't even know what hotel I'm supposed to be at, so hopefully they're out there. And I'm thinking about all of this stuff. The plane was late, and I'm the last one off the flight, and all of this. And this guy's coming, and we're coming toward each other, and I can see as I get closer that this is a white male, seems to be around the same age that I am, and he's apparently doing the same things. How do I respond? Should I pretend that I don't see this guy? Should I not pretend that I see this guy? Should I say hello? Should I not say hello? We're trying to figure this all out. As we get closer to each other, I'm now able to see that he's wearing a t-shirt, and he's able to see that I'm wearing a shirt as well. And on the shirt, we have a logo that tells us that we have a culture in common that we both belong to. So on his shirt, it says, Michigan alumni. On my shirt is the, the Michigan app. So we see that, and we say, oh, we have a common culture. We're both commiserate, We're both suffering <laughs> Michigan football fans and alumnus who are suffering through having a horrible football team at the time, although we are better now, anyway, for those football fans here. So we stop, and we start talking about that. And we, we stand there for about 15 minutes, complain about how much we hate the coach and everything. But the bottom line was that once we found a common thread, something that we could relate to each other on, we found that we were part of a similar culture, that there was something that we can connect on, we were able to stand there and have a good time ragging the football coach at our, at our university. But up until that point, all of the cues of race and racism and racial interaction and the complexity of race was influencing how we were to respond. This is the way that medical encounters happen also because people operating and working in the medical uh, medical field are no different than any other human being. When they do admissions in medical school, they do not take into consideration what are your racial attitudes, are you someone who is, you know, more likely to be... um, you know, egalitarian in the way you dispense care, they're looking at characteristics that don't, can, that don't necessarily deal with those types of characteristics. So, the same issues that we see in the broader society, you're going to find within healthcare and with any other setting in any other institution. And the dis- disparities, the differences in the care that we receive within healthcare, are often the result of underlying attitudes, values, beliefs, and experiences of people that are making decisions about care.
1: So let's, let's try to put a little controversy into this discussion. So based on, on your um, comments. i trying to be controversial. <laughs> Go ahead. So based on your comments, do you think that um, as many as all hospitals are doing cultural competency training, that that's the answer?
3: I don't think cultural competency training is going to fix all of the problems, but I think that it, it, it can help. So we, we did a study where we, we identified high-performing hospitals around the country that had majority of either uh, black or Latino patients. So these are hospitals that are, operating, uh, that are functioning in very challenging environments with predominantly minority patients, yet they're high-performing hospitals and they're producing good quality outcomes, right? And we went around and visited these hospitals and spent time trying to figure out why is it that you're able to have such good health outcomes at your hospitals where most hospitals claim that are seeing similar types of patients claim they can't do it? What do you, what's, the, what's the secret? What's the magic bullet here? And the magic bullet is that the leadership at the hospitals created a culture where they were intolerant of disparate care. I mean, it was as simple as that. The, the CEOs we met, were they were just completely different. Some were physicians, some were not. Some had formal training in healthcare administration, some did not. Some had, you know, they came from, some were men, some were women. They were just very different. Some were extroverts, some were introverts. None of their personality characteristics mattered. What mattered was they were able to convey to the people that worked in that hospital that we were going to have equitable care given to every patient that comes to the door, and if you didn't, if that wasn't who you were, you, don't, you, you shouldn't be working here. And There was one place that was, I was so impressed by this, they told a story about when they would, they needed to hire a new chief of medicine. And they had this very prestigious person coming in to interview for the job. This was was a a person that was very prominent. Um, And they sent the security guard to meet her at the airport. And the security guard picked her up and brought her back to the airport. And she went through her interviews and talked to all the, you know, important muckety-mucks at the hospital. And then when they took her back to the airport, the CEO brought the security guard into his office and said, so how, how was she? How did she act? Did she talk to you? Did she interact with you? Was she nice to you? What, what kind of a person was she? And the security guard did not give her a good report. And they did not offer her that job in spite of her, her um, excellent credentials because they, the attitude was she may be great at diagnosing disease, but she's not going to fit into our culture. She's not the kind of person that fits in this environment so we're not going to hire her. And these hospitals were places where that was the culture of the organization. So either you got there and you got with the program and became a part of that culture, or you left. And that was the way they did business. And it, it may sound simplistic, but that is literally what it was about. It was, it was to my surprise, entirely top-down. The leader said, we're not going to have that here and then did things to make it clear to everybody that they were serious, that they were not going to have that there, and got rid of people that didn't, didn't uh, buy into that mission.
1: Dr. Gordine, what do you think about cultural competency as the answer or the end-all, be-all? I think cultural competency is important
2: if it addresses a couple of things that I really haven't seen addressed across the board in cultural competency programs. I'm actually a little um, uncomfortable with the term cultural competency because it's been, it's sort of hackneyed, It, it, um, it, it, it says a lot and it says nothing at all. What I think is more important is cultural respect, respect for and acknowledgement of different attitudes and different values and different beliefs that occur between people belong to different cultures. The other piece of this is that I think that we need to continue to emphasize in the practice of medicine and when we're training future doctors, that culture is as an important factor as biology, as physiology, as pathology, especially in this day and age, because when you look at the leading causes of death in this century compared to last century, things have changed dramatically. At the turn of the 20th century, we were looking at infectious diseases as the leading cause of death, and we've done a lot to overcome infectious disease as a leading cause of death and quite frankly, have extended the life expectancy by 30 years, such that now we live long enough to fully develop the chronic diseases that are now our leading causes of death, the heart disease, the stroke, the cancer, the diabetes. Many of these diseases have, behavior plays a strong role in in, in most of these diseases. And changes in behavior, as we talk about all the time, you need to eat right, you need to exercise, you need to maintain a healthy weight, you shouldn't smoke. These behaviors play a significant role in the development of and the progression of these chronic diseases that are leading causes of death. Culture is a major determinant of behavior. What you believe and what you value and your attitudes about certain things determine how you're going to behave in certain situations. What's traditional for you, what's important for you, what's meaningful for your culture, for example, very simple terms, determines what you're going to eat. It did for me. I grew up in the South, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. The culture in Mississippi, especially in African-American communities, where I grew up, was one where we ate fried foods, lots of gravy, soul food. We cooked our vegetables with ham hocks. It took me a long time to get over that, too. It really did. (laughs) A long time. Because, for me, vegetables didn't taste right unless they had it in there. I am now free from that. And i Saute onion in a little olive oil and steam my vegetables. But using that as a very simple example, culture influences behavior. And so one of the things, and and let me just give an example about culture that came up very recently in the news, and this will illustrate what I'm talking about. A few weeks ago, Surgeon General Regina Benjamin was in Atlanta speaking at the Bronner Brothers hair show, which is a huge huge hair show in the African-American community. And she made a comment along the lines that many African-American women, and let's preface this by saying that African-American women have the highest rates of obesity in our country, and they also have the lowest rates of physical activity. She made the comment that African, many African-American women do not work out because they don't want to sweat their hair out, which is the terminology that we use. There are many women shaking their heads in this audience because you know this to be the case. She didn't say all African-American women. She said this is a barrier. This is a cultural barrier. I will be honest and tell you for many years it was for me. And I'm a doctor. I knew better. I knew better. But it was a barrier for me. Well... After that statement came out, there were people throwing all sorts of comments around and, you know, very prominent individuals who were saying, you know, to paraphrase, I don't know why Dr. Benjamin would waste her her time on such a minor topic. Um, Other people who were saying, well, this is just ridiculous that people would use such an illegitimate excuse for not exercising, blah, 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 blah. First of all, it's not a minor issue. Obesity is a gateway condition to all of the leading causes of death that we're talking about here. And so that places African-American women at quite high risk. Secondly, in my view, the people who were making the statement about the illegitimacy of the issue were making a value judgment about somebody else's culture. That's where the problem lies. We've got to be able to learn to accept and understand where people are coming from and begin to learn how to deliver healthcare services in a way that acknowledges and addresses those cultural barriers to people becoming healthy without making a judgment as to whether or not it's a ridiculous reason to not go work out. So rather than saying, you're foolish because you're allowing something as trivial as your hair to keep you from being healthy, instead say, well, let's talk about this and let's figure out a way that you can maintain your hairstyle and your investment. (laughs) Because it is an investment of time and money. We spend four or five hours and hundreds of dollars on a Saturday afternoon in a hair salon. So instead of making a value judgment about that, offer ways to overcome that cultural barrier, be open to understanding what cultural barriers are, even though they may not be the same barriers that you think are important. It's important to the person that we're trying to help become more healthy. So I'll stop with that.
1: Great, thank you. So I just want to have one quick follow-up question to um, the scenario that you brought up where the CEOs set the cultural norms in terms of how to, to work with people. And I'm wondering whether they also incorporated um, the quantitative aspect of of measuring outcomes based on race or whether the outcomes happened as a result of the cultural norms that were set.
3: So these were eight different hospitals, so uh, they they weren't all the same in in, in how they did that. And I I hate to get bogged down in the minutia of, you know. Just a two-second question. Okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) The two-second version was that they were all doing quality improvement. They were all doing uh, regular monitoring of the quality of their outcomes data, and they were doing it in the ways that were prescribed at that time, which was not by race or ethnicity, Mm -hmm. although that is now changing, and we will be doing that going forward.
1: Excellent. So I want us to now shift a little bit and talk about future opportunities and to think about, you know, as we are gearing up for health reform, which is really sort of payment reform, what the opportunities are uh, to weave in improving disparities and not only improving them, but making sure that they don't recur. So I'd like us to sort of shift in, in that arena um, and talk a little bit about that.
3: Well, there are some. I mean, so you would just, uh, one was what, what, what we just mentioned that um, it is, so hospitals. Uh, typically do not collect data on race. So they can't tell you, in many cases, if they have disparities within their hospitals. And that, a lot of that comes from uh, misinformation that is widely, I think, believed within the industry that it's illegal to collect that data. And, and, and that comes uh, from uh, several states, including this state, that had laws that, that, uh, that disallowed insurance companies from collecting data on race. And that was because of discrimination in housing, insur- help, um, uh, auto insurance, homeowner's insurance, and that sort of thing. So in the 60s, a law was passed that made it illegal to do that. So um, because of that, many people believe that it's illegal. So now it is changing now, and it's going to become a requirement that you collect the data by, and report the data by race, which will allow every hospital to be able to tell you, if they have race differences in their health outcomes. So that's, that's one change that will be happening as with the health care reform that I think is possible. We'll be, we'll be at least monitoring that information and better able to make assessments of where hospitals are going. And um, um, well, there are another, a number of things. So if, if the, um, the, the ACA law works out the way we expect it to, or we, it's designed to work out, And we can reduce the number of uninsured people. So, in fact, just yesterday, the Census Bureau reported on the new data that we now have 49.9 million Americans without health insurance, 49.9 million. And as an aside, why it is that in this country it's acceptable to us that your health insurance has anything at all to do with your employment is beyond me. I'm just constantly stunned by that that anyone would think that that's normal or acceptable when most other countries don't do it that way. And your employee has nothing to do with your homeowner's insurance or your auto insurance, but for some reason, you feel it's normal. I'm going to get a job with insurance benefits, rather than saying, no, we're going to change the laws so that we handle health insurance in this country in a different way, many different models out there. Anyway, if the law works out, if the law works out the way it's supposed to, we would expect that there would be fewer people that are uninsured. And, of course, the uninsured in America tend to be disproportionately racial and ethnic minorities, and especially Latinos that have the highest rate of uninsurance. So if, that, if it's the case that, people, that we do increase the, uh, the number of people with insurance, there will be more people with access to health care, and that should improve outcomes, at least for those populations.
2: And then a couple of other things, too. Um Reform is emphasizing the practice of evidence-based medicine, which um, hopefully will um, take the sort of variability out of treatment options that are offered to individuals and create a more level playing field in terms of offering to any patient who presents with a certain set of symptoms um, evidence-based therapy. I think that's very promising and it moves us one step in, in the right direction. Um, and finally, uh, prevention services for medic- Medicare recipients um, are going to be covered without um, uh, co-pay from, requiring copay from the individual, which is also extremely important. Prevention is something that um, we really need to emphasize more in our healthcare system. You know, we're a bit imbalanced, where we're very heavily treatment oriented. Uh, Prevention and wellness, obviously, are extremely important as well. Um, And then, you know, hopefully, uh, the individuals um, will become better informed about ways to to keep themselves healthy, ways to maintain their own health, which is one of the reasons why I wrote Reclaiming Our Health, to provide that information um, to ensure that that we know how to take care of ourselves. Because, as I often say to people, you know, um, even if you go to the doctor four or five times a year, and most of us don't even go that much a year, um, who's responsible for your health the other 360 days of the year? You are. Uh, So it's very important to understand how to be well, what protects your health, and what's detrimental to your health, and and hopefully um, we'll begin to continue to move in that direction as well.
1: Terrific. Um, Before we go to our next question, I want to encourage you to pass your cards. Deborah, we're... Left or right? To the ends of the aisles, let's say that, um, so that we can uh, take questions from the audience. Um, And while we're collecting the questions, um, let's talk about whether there are uh, ethnically diverse countries that are getting this right. Let's talk about models that we can emulate.
3: Well, sadly, I, um, that's a difficult one, because actually this is something I've been working on lately, one, uh, and that this is a great opportunity for me to, to plug that. Next year, we're going to be sponsoring a conference that will be held here in Baltimore called the International Conference on Health in the African Diaspora, where we're going to be bringing to Baltimore people from throughout the Western Hemisphere who are doing work on health among African descent populations in Central America, the Caribbean, and South America. And um, so I've been uh, interacting a lot over the last year with people in all of these countries, in fact, visiting many of these countries and kind of seeing what's going on there. And, um, and, And the disparities that we see in this country are existing in most of these countries as well. And in many cases, they're even wider than what we have here at least those countries for which the data is available, but you can certainly see in those, when you're in the countries, that the disparities are dramatic there as well. Now, the one country that I would say is doing better than the United States, because most of those countries I'd say are doing worse, for example, Brazil, Honduras, I'd say are doing far worse than the United States. Um, One country that I think is um, uh, doing better is Canada. Canada is doing better. Now, there are a couple of differences uh, in Canada between Canada and the United States. And it's interesting to compare these two countries because they're similar in so many ways. Uh, and in many ways, the comparison between the U.S. and Honduras is a, you know, it's a, it, there are many ways in which that comparison is not a legitimate comparison because the countries are so different. But with Canada, it's more common, more similar to, to the U.S. So, of course, they have their what they call Medicare program, which is a universal health, insurance program, similar to the way our Medicare program works here in many ways. So every Canadian has access to health care, and especially primary care, and um, that's one factor. Um, The the myth that many Americans have that there's no racism in Canada, I'd, I'd say I have friends and colleagues up there that would tell you that that is not true, that they do have racism there. But racism plays out differently in Canada than the United States. Um, you also have a um, larger proportion of the black Canadian community that is uh, that are recent immigrants, mostly from, uh, from Car- uh, the Caribbean a- uh, region or from Africa. And we know that immigrants tend to be healthier than non-immigrants, even in the United States. So people who immigrate to the country tend to be healthier than the whole people that live here. And we can have a whole session on why that is, but basically when you think about who's going to immigrate, sick people generally not going to immigrate to other countries, so there's a, at least some selection going on there. So there are a number of things that are a little different in Canada. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a country where, although it's, a, it's, a, it's clearly a first world and uh, ec- uh, um, economically advanced country, it's also a country with less income inequality. So the uh, wealth that is in that country is more equitably, equitably distributed than it is in the United States. So uh, of course income inequality is one of the things that helps to fuel disparities and inequalities across a variety of sectors of American society and they don't have that there as much as we do here so there are a variety of things that, that I think lead to Canada having smaller disparities than you see in the United States
1: Interesting, thank you um, Are we ready for audience questions? There
3: are a ton of questions. Okay, and, and the conference is July 4th through the 8th <laughs> It will be here in Baltimore. It is open to the public, and we want the public to come. The website is iChad, I-C-H-A-D, And I'm going to be checking to see if there's a spike in our hits on the website tomorrow. So um,
1: this is somewhat related to what we just talked about, and the question is, in countries with universal health care, do we find health disparities? So, for example... What's it like in England?
3: You still find disparities. So um, in in most of these... So one thing you have to remember is that the concept of race and ethnicity differs from one country to the next. So you can't always make a direct um, apples-to-apples comparison across countries because the concept has different meaning in different places some countries don't even collect the data in, in that way. They don't collect data on race or ethnicity, so you can't tell you the rates for different groups. So, it's a little m- more complicated uh, to do that. So, in the UK, you do still find disparities uh, by race and ethnicity, by nationality, although their data systems are not like ours and they don't have as much information as much data on that as we do.
1: Okay. Um, this is a follow-up question to the culturally competent hospitals that we talked about, um, or culturally appropriate hospitals. Can you share the geographical areas where these hospitals were located?
3: Okay, the hospitals we visited were in um, San Antonio, Texas, uh, University Hospital in San Antonio, South Miami, Baptist Hospital, South Miami, um, Sands Jacksonville Hospital, which is in Jacksonville, Florida, and Harper Hospital in Detroit. And I can't remember all of of the other hospitals, but but that's, oh, Harlem Hospital. Harlem Hospital in New York. Um, That's all I I can remember right now. Um, There was a hospital in Maryland that refused to let us come and uh, spend the day with them. So um, I'm not going to promote the fact that they were doing well. It was uh, Mercy Hospital right here, here in Baltimore. Hmm. Yeah, Even though they, they didn't want people from Johns Hopkins to come to their hospital, they thought we were going to steal something from them. Uh,
1: this question is for Dr. Gordine. Uh Can you address the new guideline recommendations on mammograms that were recently changed and suggest that we don't need to have them annually? However, with the increased incidence of breast cancer In the African American community, there seems to be a disconnect.
2: Yes, I can address those um, because I have some concerns about those. Um, Notwithstanding the fact that the 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 committee that put forth these guidelines certainly had um, a scientific basis for doing so. However. It's interesting, I'll tell you a little story. These guidelines came out uh, right before my book was to go to the typesetter. And if you know anything about publishing, once your book is typeset, it's done. You can't change anything. And so I had to make a special request to the publisher. Can I please have the manuscript back just for a moment so I can update um, the book with the new guidelines and my opinion about them? Just for those of you who aren't aware in general, the old guidelines recommended a baseline mammogram between the ages of 35 and 40 and a yearly mammogram for women starting at age 40. The new guidelines s- state that there is no need for mammograms between, b- before the age of 50 and then mammograms every other year starting at age 50. I had some concerns with regard to the population um, who I was writing about in the book, and that is African Americans and African American women because of the fact that for many, many years, and we made some progress today, there was a huge gap in regular um, mammogram screenings um, between African-American women and, and white women. In other words, African-American women were not getting screened for many reasons, um, some of them having to do with um, lack of information information some having to do with lack of access, some having to do with fear, with misperceptions about the process, et cetera, which we believe contributed to the disparity in um, breast cancer fatalities, mortality. It's very interesting, and this is still the case, that African-American women are less likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer than white women, but more likely to die from it. And part of that we thought was due to um, late diagnosis, which was, we thought in part, due to um, lack of regular screening. So we've made some progress and almost completely closed the gap in terms of African-American women getting regular screenings through uh, concerted effort, uh, public health effort, outreach into the community, and actually looking at what was done over the past decades with regard to increasing African-American women's screening rates, mammogram, mammography rates. We can learn a whole lot about um, how to address um, the African-American female culture because a lot of work was done with regard to addressing the cultural barriers to receiving mammograms. And so my concern with those recommendations was that, one, I wasn't sure that they should be applied across the board. And I don't think that the committee recommended that you should not talk to your doctor, you should follow our guidelines. They, they did say um, later that, you know, clearly this needs to be a discussion between you and your doctor as to whether or not you should receive mammograms at an earlier age and more frequently. And that's what I put in my book. I am concerned about us losing ground that we've gained on gaining African-American women's confidence in mammography screening, that we might lose that. And so what I encourage the women to do in my book is talk to your doctor. Talk to your doctor and make sure that both of you are comfortable with waiting until the age of 50 to get screened. And if, in fact, one of you is not, and if you would feel more comfortable getting screened earlier, I don't see that there's any harm in that. I think there's room in those guidelines for individual decisions between the doctor and the patient. And that's what I recommend out of concern that we might be moving backwards.
1: Okay. Um, The next question asks for uh, commentary on the linkage between literacy, health literacy, and health disparities.
2: There's definitely a clear linkage. to be quite honest, um, health illiteracy, uh, let, let me back up. Health literacy is basically the ability to to understand and to apply health knowledge um, in, in very general terms. And health, liter- health illiteracy is not exclusive to racial and ethnic minorities. There's, there's a level of health illiteracy that, that uh, permeates all racial and ethnic groups, and so we've got some ground to cover on making sure that people – understand health information and are able to apply that health information um, in order to promote their own health. Part of it is our responsibility as healthcare providers in making sure that we provide information in the way that people understand it. Um, and, and that goes beyond just speaking in, in medical terms or health speak to addressing some of the you know, cultural beliefs and attitudes that might contribute to health illiteracy or health misunderstanding. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to begin to talk to people in plain language, which is what I do in in Reclaiming Our Health, talk to people in plain language about their health and what it means and what they can do about it, and open up the dialogue and be open to hearing what that individual patient is willing or able to do or not do. And this gets back to the whole issue of noncompliance that I sort of touched on earlier. You know, oftentimes when patients are being described as noncompliant, the, the inference is that patients are stubborn, um, unwilling to do what I, the doctor, tell them to do, don't really care about their health, when that's not the case at all. It may be that they're not able for any number of reasons related to income, related to access to the resources needed to be healthy, related to transportation, you know, those types of things. They might be unable to follow your treatment plan, which is why the plan needs to be crafted, as a team, with the doctor and the patient. That's the P in um, the, the definition of quality, healthcare quality by the Institute of Medicine, patient-centered, making sure that the patient is in the center of that type of discussion. Um, that also helps with the patient's ability to understand and apply health knowledge, which
1: is, in fact, health literacy. Okay. Um, I'm going to combine a couple of questions because there's a recurring theme in terms of more explicitly talking about the influence of class in uh, exacerbating disparities and how we sort of reconcile that issue with the fact that even within middle class African Americans you can still see disparities. So, So talk a little bit about this very complex issue here.
3: So at all levels of income and education, we find race differences, and, and, and I'm glad that that, that that issue was brought up, because I try to focus um, on this issue and talk about, especially with higher, more highly educated and higher income African Americans, so that they understand that they are also at risk of having worse health outcomes than their counterparts, because the disparities exist regardless of levels of education and, and, and income. It is not the case that simply being highly educated and having a lot of income, um, um, you know, re- it certainly reduces your, your, your risk of being treated poorly in the healthcare system and getting poor health outcomes, but it does not eliminate it, and you still are likely to have worse health outcomes compared to um, people, other, uh, people of other ethnic groups that are of similar levels of education and income. So why is that? It's because we are in a country that has problems around racism as well as classism. So both are a problem. They relate to each other, but they're not the same problem. So being poor and white places you at increased risk of having bad health outcomes, but also being rich and black places you at risk of, being, of having poor health outcomes compared to other rich people. So it's, it's both. And they interact, of course, but these are, not, um, these are different um, um, different problems, race and class. If you look at, um, and, and one of the things that I do when I do presentations about this is to show within levels of education, within levels of income that you still see this gap, especially between black and white, at all levels. And, and I think that, that's, that this, it's, it's one of the things that people most frequently misunderstand about health disparities. They think that it's really not about race, but about class. And they think that's really about access to access to healthcare issues and it's not just that either. So
1: Another uh theme that has come up is to talk a little bit about the difference in disparities based on age and if there's anything that comes out from that. Specifically in the geriatric
3: population. You mean racial and ethnic disparities within the geriatric population? Yes. Oh, well, we, we, so at the very highest uh, ages, oldest ages, we actually find the the disparities do begin to disappear. But the reason for that is that because um, at those high ages, mid-80s, upper-80s, the sicker black people have already died off, right? So when you get to that, I mean, you know, it sounds crass, but that is the reality, right? So Black male life expectancy is 69 years. 69 years. So um, many black men are not going to survive into the 80s. Once you get into the 80s, you're looking at people who are particularly hardy, who, are, who have coping strategies and mechanisms that they may themselves not understand, but they are effective. They are people who are genetically predisposed to long life, and that's who you have left once you get into the oldest ages. So... So I guess one way of eliminating disparities is that um, it's kind of a uh, survival of the fittest approach, which would mean that uh, some people would die off. I'm glad you can all laugh about this. Imagine if you did this every day like I do, worked on these The The
1: recurring themes, okay. So, Dr. Gordine, the question is: So, how do you not sweat your weed out? I knew that was the question.
2: <laughs> I knew that was the qu- when she came up and said that. Okay, um, there are ways.
3: There I'm are ways. I'm glad you're here, and you can handle it. I know, Tom. <laughs>
2: Okay, there, seriously, there are, there are options, and, and, and when I talk to people about this issue and try to explain the importance of it and, and not to sort of poo-poo it, I also, especially when I'm talking to healthcare providers, say, you know, this is an opportunity to branch out beyond your office and speak to professionals in other areas like hair care to find out what you can recommend to your patients. It's serious business. This is very important. And so it, it depends on how you wear your hair. There are a number of options that, that women who work out in the gym with me do. Uh, natural hairstyles, which are really becoming more and more popular now, um, are one option. Hair weaves are another. Wigs, braids, or here's what I do. My hair is relaxed and I'm, I wear it short, which is actually more convenient to, to style because I don't have that much to style. But what I literally do, um, how many people in here take Zumba or know what Zumba is? You know you sweat really, 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 really bad in Zumba. I mean, it's just, it's ugly. So I literally take a cotton bandana and I wrap my hair tightly, very tightly, with the bandana as I'm working out. I even stop periodically during the one-hour class to re it. Because for me, it's got to be tight. This is like very practical information for you ladies. And then what I do is when I return home, I allow my hair to dry completely before I unwrap it. Now, let me say this. Your hair has to be properly conditioned and taken care of. You know, you still have to wash your hair frequently. You need to condition it properly, and you can talk to your hairdresser about the appropriate types of conditioners and hairdressers, that, hair dressings that you should use on your particular type of hair. But for me, wrapping my hair um, helps to maintain the style um, beyond a very strenuous Zumba class. But again, I hope this is demonstrating to people that it's, it's really important to be able to offer options to people to start where folks are and offer options to to people so that they can achieve the healthy lifestyle that most people, I I don't think I've ever met a person who didn't want to be healthy. I really haven't. People want to do that, but some people think that certain obstacles are insurmountable. So those are just some tips that I hope were helpful uh, on how to take care of your hair. (laughs)
1: Thank you. Um, So, yes, please. Following that theme of meeting people where they are as a way in which to address disparities, one of the topics that we haven't touched on is the role of community in addressing disparities within their own communities. Um, And I'm wondering if there are examples of innovative ways in which communities have taken a hold of this issue.
2: Yes, there are. Um, There are um, a number of examples. Um, Understanding that in many African-American communities, um, and I'm not talking about geographically defined neighborhoods, but community in a larger sense, um, the African-American church is the center of that community. Um, I'm aware, certainly at my church, uh, which is Union Union Bethel AME in Randallstown, Um, my church has done quite a bit to address the health issue within our community. Um, It's a very powerful thing when the pastor actually stands in the pulpit and says to the congregation, we are unhealthy, and we are going to do something about that. Um, You know, to the extent of offering um, exercise and fitness classes in the church, to the extent of altering the Foods served at the church repast, you know, broiled chicken instead of fried, Um, water instead of soda, Uh, you know, cutting back on the mac and cheese and all the other traditional things that we tend to eat. Because actually, you know, that's really a form of socialization. Some folks spend all day in church on Sunday and they eat there and they socialize there. And so changing the whole conversation Um, to one where health consciousness is something that's important, starting from the pulpit on down, I think has been very effective. Um, Also in communities, um, the local schools have become involved. Um, High school right around the corner from my house, Owings Mills High School, offers aerobics classes at low cost to people, uh, which offers people a low-cost opportunity to um, become physically fit Uh, Communities have banded together and formed food co-ops, which offers people the opportunity to get healthy um, options of foods. Um, Those are just a few examples that I can think of off the top of my head. But community is very important in terms of um, addressing this issue, legitimizing the issue, and making uh, a safe environment in which to begin to tackle the issue.
3: I can give a quick, a couple of quick examples of communities that I know about that have done um, actually pretty impressive things. So in 2003, we started working with a community in southwest Baltimore, and there's at least one person here from that community tonight, and I don't see her anymore, but I saw her earlier. There she is, waiting, right? Uh, um, and, they, and, and at that time, we went into that community. We collected data on all the adults living there and found that that community was not a very healthy, healthy community. But since that time... They've, um, uh, urban farming has developed in that community. There was no, there were no supermarkets in that, in that neighborhood at the time. Not one. There was no fast food restaurants. Not even McDonald's was there. The only thing that was there was mom and Pop fish fries, corner stores selling liquor, lottery tickets, and cigarettes. And they're working with the bodegas there now to, to bring, uh, fresh food and vegetable into the, into the, into the community to make that available. You know, um, there's a community-based organization was established there called the Faith Center for, for Community Health and Wellness, and they do a number of health promotion uh, projects there, and they're working along with the churches in that community to try to do things there. And Talbot County, there's a community there that we're working with. Talbot County has the widest disparities of any county in the state of Maryland. I would never have thought it would be Talbot County, but it, they do. And they... Uh, People from that community contacted our center to say, can you help us figure out what's going on in our community and what we can do here? And we're now working with them to try to diagnose the problem, but at the same time, they've been able to bring together community-based organizations, including the churches, civic organizations, social groups, as well as government, who've come together to form a coalition in Talbot County to deal with health disparities in Talbot County. In uh, Jacksonville, Florida, that same hospital I mentioned earlier, Sh- Sands Jacksonville, in, um, um, which is a University of Florida hospital, what they did was when they when they uh, established their electronic uh, electronic medical records for the hospital, they included all of the healthcare providers in that community, the community that they serve, in their system, which is radical. Believe me, because it's going to be required that everyone, every even the small practitioner off in an office somewhere by themselves is going to have to have an electronic medical record. They, for free, included every provider in that community, which means that they're now all linked to the hospital system so that any patient that's seen by any of these providers are all in one data system so that as they move around from place to place, they're able to be tracked and monitored. It also, of course, helps the hospital to bring in and have better control of all of the providers in the community. But, it also, but they also connected that along with um, Walgreens, uh, and they are able to tap into Walgreens' system, which means that they can, uh, and they have a, um, a community nurses that go out into the community and, and, uh, and help do patient uh, care management outside of the hospital. So the nurse that's visiting with this patient may, may determine that maybe they're not on the right dose of their medication, Can pick up the phone right there on the spot, call the physician and say, we need to change this medication. This is what I'm saying. The physician can go into the system and electronically send that to Walgreens and the patient can then say, can just go directly to Walgreens and pick up their medication. Now that may not sound that incredible to you, but believe me, as someone who spends a lot of time in hospitals and healthcare system, that is an unbelievable system that they have. And it's unbelievable in terms of how efficient it is, and how they're able to manage people's care outside of the hospital so much more effectively.
1: Terrific. Um, And I think the the last question sort of weaves it all together, uh, and I'm going to use moderator prerogative to also answer. Uh, And the question is the role that nonprofit organizations play in addressing these issues and whether they're a sustainable solution. Um, And certainly, um, from my perspective, in terms of what I have observed here in Baltimore, um, they are certainly part of the answer. They're not um, the only part of the answer, but they are most definitely a sustainable part of the answer, along with the health system. But one of the things that we haven't talked about is the broader role of government in terms of making explicit decisions, um, be it within transportation, be it within education, and how those policy decisions affect health outcomes of communities. Um, And so I I would just add that to the discussion.
2: I think that's really important. Um, For the last three years, I've been the owner-operator, sole employee of uh, my own health policy consulting firm, and I work with clients to develop strategies, policy strategies to improve the health of underserved communities. And so what Dr. Barbo is talking about is very um, timely and, and very important because there are things that government can do to address the issues of disparities, um, things across many different um, aspects and factors that contribute to disparities. For example, looking at our communities and at the, the prevalence of food deserts in certain Parts of our city uh, providing incentives for providers of um, fresh and plentiful healthful foods, be they supermarkets or farmers' markets or some other creative way to do it. Baltimore City has come up with a, a creative way to access um, healthy foods through the, the online ordering and i 'll allow you to talk about it i don 't want to butcher it, but very innovative way. For, to allow people to order uh, healthy foods online and have them delivered to a place that's convenient for them. Um, creating um, zoning um, regulations or laws that um, allow for the development of walkable communities. You know, we talk about people needing to increase their physical activity, but, you know, try walking around some of the streets and some of the neighborhoods in Baltimore that don't have sidewalks that have Um, very busy traffic patterns, um, et cetera, that that don't have the necessities of life within walking distance like schools, like places of employment, doctor's offices. Those things are extremely important for us to look at on a policy level as well. So there are lots of policy changes that can be made that can actually make the healthy choice the easy and affordable choice for people. And so government has a huge role to play in that
3: you know i think in addition to government policy there's corporate policy and most food deserts are produced by corporate policy policies in the in the boardroom not in the um, in the in the government uh, halls of government it's the corporations deciding where they're going to locate and whether or not this is in a population that they feel they can make a profit off of and so as we think about policy and how we can use policy to address disparities we also need to be thinking about corporate policy which can be as impactful and in some cases even more impactful than government policy
1: I think that's a good note to end on. Um, I want to thank the audience Diane I don 't know if you want to make some closing remarks well, i.